Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode. Nineteen fifty-three, a coronation fit for a king. But it's a young queen who's about to be crowned, and the crowd roars its approval. The fact that she's a woman attracts no comment, and she will go on to reign over us for six decades. But England's queens haven't always been greeted with such adoration. The first woman who sought to be crowned queen in her own right here in Westminster 800 years earlier received a very different response. She wasn't met by cheering crowds. Instead, she was chased away from the capital by an angry mob. That's because throughout our history, women and power have made an uneasy combination. Never more so than in the Middle Ages, when a king was a warrior who had to fight to win power, then battle to keep it. But despite everything that stood in their way, a handful of extraordinary women did attempt to rule medieval England. This series is about the queens who challenged male power and the fierce reactions they provoked. When they pursued power like kings, these royal women were criticized and condemned. Most graphically of all, they've been vilified as she-wolves. These are the stories of the she-wolves of England, and to explore them is to realize just how far we've come and how little has changed. In 1308, a 12-year-old girl, Isabella of France, became Queen of England when she married the English king. A century and a half later, another young French girl, Margaret of Anjou, followed in her footsteps. These are the stories of two women who were thrust into a violent and dysfunctional foreign country. And as their new lives unfolded, they each felt driven to take control of the kingdom themselves. At their weddings, Isabella and Margaret were little more than pawns in the power play between England and France. But as they grew into women, they became queens who dominated the board. It was Margaret's violent pursuit of power that inspired Shakespeare to name her the She-Wolf of France. Another poet, Thomas Gray, later gave Isabella the same title. But there was no hint of the she-wolf when Isabella first arrived in England at the age of 12. Today, this seems an extraordinarily young age to be married off. But as a princess, Isabella had been prepared from the cradle for such a royal match. As the daughter of the King of France, Isabella came to her marriage as the living embodiment of an Anglo-French alliance. 
She had grown up amid the sophistication of the Parisian court, watching her mother act as consort to one of the most powerful kings in Europe. She had a keen sense of her own majesty, and she knew exactly what should await her as Queen of England. What she found was quite different. The signs were there from her very first public appearance, the royal couple's coronation. Isabella should have been centre stage, but her place was taken by a handsome young man named Piers Gaveston. He carried the king's crown into the abbey and sat with Edward at the coronation banquet. Gaveston was so magnificently dressed, one observer noted, that he more resembled the god Mars than an ordinary mortal. Isabella was only 12, but she knew how a king's wife should be treated. And it was clear that her rightful place at Edward's side had already been taken by Gaveston. Isabella wasn't the only one who noticed the relationship between Edward and Piers. Her French uncles went home in a rage, insulted that Edward had given some of their wedding presents to Gaveston. A chronicler of the time wrote, I do not remember to have heard that one man so loved another. Not only was Isabella finding that there were three people in her marriage, but Gaveston's preening and waspish presence was having an equally corrosive effect on the king's relationship with his nobles. A king couldn't rule without the support of his powerful nobles. They would help him keep order in the kingdom and defend it from attack, while the king himself offered leadership and security. But that's just what the nobles thought Edward wasn't doing. His father, the great warrior King Edward I, had defended the country and earned the title Hammer of the Scots for his ferocious attempt to conquer Scotland. But these hard-won gains were now being lost by his son, and the nobles laid the blame on his obsession with Gaveston. Eventually, seeing no other option, a group of nobles came to Parliament, armed and angry. They demanded that Gaveston be banished and forced Edward to agree that 21 of them should rule on his behalf. This was not what Isabella had signed up for when she married the King of England. But she was still little more than a child and she was powerless to stop the conflict. And to make matters worse, Edward wouldn't accept Gaveston's exile. Within two months, they were back together again. Isabella had, though, clearly spent at least one night with her husband. By the spring of 1312, she was 16 and pregnant for the first time. But instead of relishing her new status as the future mother of England's heir, she found herself following Edward and Gaveston round the north of England with a hostile army of lords in hot pursuit. Isabella was dragged around the country as Edward tried to keep his lover safe. But the group of lords chasing them, led by the Earl of Lancaster, were determined to capture Gaveston and end this destructive relationship forever. They got their chance when the royal party was separated. Gaveston took refuge in Scarborough, and Edward and Isabella, alone for once, headed for the fortified city of York. They were here at York Castle when they heard the dramatic news that Gaveston had been starved out of the fortress at Scarborough and was now a prisoner of the Lords. Edward was consumed with anxiety about the fate of his favourite. Isabella's reaction isn't recorded, but we might assume it was rather different. Isabella thought Gaveston's removal might allow her to take her rightful place at her husband's side. But it was becoming clear that only death would separate Gaveston from Edward once and for all. Isabella was still here at York with her husband when word came of a bloody drama that had played itself out a hundred miles further south. Some of the lords, led by the powerful Earl of Lancaster, had seized Gaveston 
and sentenced him to death in a show trial. Gaveston was taken out onto a sunny hillside near Warwick and his head hacked from his body. Isabella's rival was gone and now her position was about to become even stronger. On the 12th of November, 1312, Isabella went into labor. Shortly before six the next morning, she gave birth to a boy. The 17-year-old queen kept her own counsel, but she'd already learned a great deal. Her husband, she now knew, had much passion and little judgment. His nobles were men to be reckoned with. And now, with her son in her arms, Isabella herself held the key that would transform her power as queen. As a young bride, she'd been little more than a decorative accessory to a diplomatic alliance. But as the mother of the future King of England, she had the possibility of real power. But what Isabella was seeking at this time was no more than the conventional role of a queen. Not power for herself, but to support her husband. Tradition gave the queen a formal role as a peacemaker. Even a warrior king could show mercy if his consort knelt before him in public to beg for peace. Isabella's husband was no warrior king, but she was a peacemaking queen. And now she helped to forge a brittle truce between Edward and his nobles. But almost immediately, her husband undermined her efforts. In 1314, the army he led suffered the most humiliating defeat of any English king at the hands of the Scots. At Bannockburn, Robert Bruce routed Edward's army. England had lost its hold on Scotland. Its borders were now overrun by Scots raids, and they couldn't be defended without the help of the Earl of Lancaster, the man who had murdered Edward's beloved Gaveston. The threat of the Scots and the rift between Edward and Lancaster made England a profoundly dysfunctional kingdom, and for Isabella it was a thankless task to be its queen. But her unhappy situation was about to become much worse. A new favourite was emerging at Edward's court, who would be more of a threat to Isabella than Gaveston had ever been. Hugh Despenser was a political predator. He had known Edward since his teens, but unlike Gaveston, Despenser doesn't seem to have been the king's lover. But this was small comfort to Isabella. While she was still loyally performing her royal duty by giving birth to two more children, she watched as Dispenser set about using his influence with the king to build up his own wealth and power to dizzying heights, no matter how illegal his methods or who stood in his way. By 1321, the Lords had had enough. They marched on London, and threatened violence against Edward and his new favourite. In the attempt to prevent civil war, Isabella took action to support her husband in the way only a queen could. Isabella had just given birth to her fourth child, and yet again she had to go down on her knees in the ritual of queenly intervention to persuade Edward to banish Dispenser. She won a temporary truce, but little more than two months later, with terrible irony, it was Isabella herself who precipitated the country into civil war. In October 1321, Isabella was on her way to Canterbury on pilgrimage. At the end of a hard day's ride, she found herself at the gates of Leeds Castle, a mighty stronghold built near the Kent coast, seeking shelter for the night. To welcome the Queen as a guest would normally be an honour, but the castle's lord, Bartholomew Badlesmere, was one of the rebels who had marched on London. His wife, left to keep the castle in his absence, was alarmed by Isabella's sudden arrival and refused to let her in. 
Isabella was left out in the cold and she was furious. She never lacked a sense of her own majesty and now she ordered her men to force their way in. In response, the archers on the castle walls began to shoot and within minutes, six of Isabella's soldiers lay dead. Isabella's confrontation at Leeds gave her husband the chance to send a message to all the rebel lords. The violent reception of his queen, Edward said, was treason, and he sent troops and siege engines to attack the castle. And when Lady Battlesmere threw open the gates to appeal for mercy, she and her young children were dispatched as prisoners to the tower, while her men were hanged from the castle walls. From this moment, the lords who opposed Edward could be in no doubt that the king intended the conflict to be a fight to the death. And in March 1322, at Boroughbridge in Yorkshire, Edward finally got his revenge for the years of humiliation when his army defeated and captured the Earl of Lancaster. As the greatest chronicler of the reign recalled, The Earl of Lancaster once cut off Piers Gaveston's head and now, by the king's command, the earl himself had lost his head. Thus, perhaps not unjustly, the earl received measure for measure. Isabella's husband was making very clear the dreadful penalties that now faced anyone who dared to oppose him. England's prisons filled with the wives and children of the rebels while aristocratic corpses were left to rot on gallows across the country. With the ruthless dispenser at his side, Edward had found a way to eradicate all opposition by turning his rule into a grasping and paranoid tyranny. Isabella had done everything she could to be the perfect queen, but now, to her horror, she found that she too would be a victim of the new regime. And it was Isabella's French heritage which left her acutely vulnerable. In the summer of 1324, a crisis erupted between England and France. England still held Gascony in the south of the country, but Isabella's brother, the French king, was threatening to take it. It seemed war with France was imminent. Edward ordered that all French men and women living in England should be arrested as enemy aliens. And his favourite, Dispenser, seized on the opportunity to take Isabella's possessions, intern her French servants and separate her from her children. Now, Isabella's feelings for her husband and Dispenser turned from mistrust to loathing. But there was one glimmer of hope the French king was willing to negotiate. So Isabella cleverly put herself at her husband's disposal as the perfect emissary to her brother, the King of France. She had been so patient in the face of provocation that Edward and Dispenser seized on this solution, believing she could be trusted to return like a loyal lapdog. And so, on the 9th of March, 1325, Isabella left England for Paris. Isabella successfully negotiated a truce between England and France. Then, she persuaded Edward that their 12-year-old son, the heir to the throne, should be sent to Paris to seal the agreement by paying homage to the French king. This was the moment Isabella had been waiting for. When her son arrived on French soil, her position was transformed. As Edward's consort, there'd been little she could do, but with her son beside her, she could speak and act as the mother of the heir to the throne in the face of her husband's tyranny. She'd been waiting for her chance, and now she took it. With his son, Edward sent an instruction that his wife should return home. But Isabella had no intention of doing any such thing. And we know exactly the reason she gave. The manuscript of the greatest chronicle of the reign, the Vita Edwardi Secundi, is long lost, 
but its text has been passed down through the centuries. And here, in this modern translation, we can hear Isabella's voice speaking for the first time. Until now, she'd been a supporting player in the unfolding drama, but now she moved to the centre of the stage as she replied to her husband with open defiance. I feel that marriage is a union of a man and a woman, and someone has come between my husband and myself and is trying to break this bond. I declare that I will not return until this intruder is removed. Isabella's game plan was to present herself to the world as a wronged wife. And until now, she'd seemed more than justified in doing so. But another player was about to enter the scene who would change forever the picture the world would have of Isabella. Roger Mortimer was 38 years old, a soldier and a politician of skill and experience. He had joined the rebels against Edward in 1321 and escaped into exile in France. And within weeks of Isabella and Mortimer's meeting in Paris, rumours circulated that their partnership was more than political. There's tantalisingly little evidence of the private dynamics of Isabella and Mortimer's relationship, but it was clearly an all-consuming passion, not least because of the danger into which they'd precipitated themselves. Adultery for a queen was sin and treason combined. But for Isabella, there were no longer any safe options. With her knight at her side, and the most valuable pawn of all, her son, under her control, what move would the Queen make? Isabella took a momentous decision. It was no longer enough to remove Dispenser. She needed to remove her husband, too. She intended to do something unprecedented in English history, depose an anointed king. Could she, as a woman, achieve this? She certainly couldn't do it alone. She needed an army. And how she got one reveals a great deal about the woman she'd become. Now she was an independent player on the European stage, and she arranged the marriage of her son to Philippa, daughter of the Count of Hainault, who brought troops and ships as her dowry. On the 22nd of September, 1326, at the head of a hundred ships filled with soldiers, Isabella, Mortimer and Prince Edward set sail for England. When Isabella stepped onto the Suffolk coast, she was taking up arms against her king and husband with her lover at her side. She could hardly have been more openly defying the conventions of female virtue. And yet she wasn't met with outrage and vilification, Instead, she was greeted with open arms. While there was no alternative to Edward's rule, his people hadn't known how to resist. Isabella wasn't challenging him in her own name. She, after all, had no right to the throne, but in the name of their 13-year-old son, Prince Edward. He was too young to act alone, and so Isabella acted for him. And with the promise of a new young king and his capable mother, her husband's power simply melted away. Isabella might have been an unfaithful wife and a rebel queen, but she was also England's champion against Edward's tyranny. No she-wolf, but the saviour of her adopted country. When news of the queen's triumphal progress reached Edward and Dispenser, they were gripped with panic. They packed their saddlebags with gold and fled west, where they were captured, bedraggled figures in the Welsh rain. Isabella had Dispenser brought before her. There's no question that she relished her moment of revenge. Dispenser was hanged, then disemboweled and castrated when he was still alive. The supportive queen had been transformed into a very different figure. Now, Isabella was acting as if she were a king, inflicting brutal punishments on her enemies. Which, of course, raised the question of what she would do with her own king. In January 1327, 
in a carefully stage-managed piece of political theatre, it was declared in Parliament that Edward had forfeited the allegiance of his people and that now his son should wear the crown in his place. In just four short months, Isabella had achieved the unthinkable. She, a queen, had seized power to depose a crowned and anointed king for the first time in English history. To undo a coronation was no easy task. Parliament had given the act a legal gloss, but to make doubly sure, Edward was forced to sign his own abdication here at Kenilworth. Now the deed was done, but could Isabella rule in her son's name while her husband still lived? The new King Edward III was still just a teenager, so Isabella was running his government for him. But never before had England had to contend with the existence of an ex-king, alive and well, while a new king, or in this case a king's mother, ruled the country. Isabella had Edward imprisoned in Berkeley Castle in Gloucestershire. But she knew that while he remained alive, he was the obvious focus for any rebellion. Within a year, three plots to liberate him had already been uncovered. These documents here in Berkeley Castle give us a sense of the extraordinary difficulty of keeping an ex-king in custody. We can see here from the provisions bought for him, which included 280 eggs, or over in Latin, in just three months, that at first he was kept in some comfort. But this account tells us of the reinforcement of the castle, with bolts and great bars and other ironwork, after Edward escaped from his guards in the summer of 1327. It was obvious how dangerous his continued existence was to the new regime. We can't know just how closely Isabella was involved in planning Edward's murder. By its very nature, his end was a grim business done in secrecy and shadows. His death was announced, but not explained, and in the absence of an explanation, rumour and speculation took its place. Legend has it that he was killed with a red-hot poker thrust into his anus to burn his intestines from the inside. This violent detail was immortalised more than 200 years later by Christopher Marlowe in his play of Edward's life, when he called Isabella that unnatural queen, false Isabel. What's certain is that it was Edward's death, a murder that supposedly took place in this room at Berkeley, that sealed Isabella's reputation as a she-wolf. Just 30 years later, the chronicler Geoffrey Le Baker portrayed Edward as a Christ-like figure, betrayed and destroyed by a wife who was like the biblical Jezebel, a tyrannical and sexually corrupt queen manipulating her husband and son to impose evil on the kingdom. But these opinions were formed in hindsight. When Isabella knelt in prayer at her husband's funeral, she was still seen as the saviour of the nation. But though Isabella was a political animal through and through, there were limits to her political understanding. And now her overwhelming sense of entitlement began to blunt her vision. Like so many rulers before and since, she started to run the country for her own enrichment. Very few of the objects that Isabella owned still survive, but one that does is this exquisite casket. It's delicately engraved with the arms of England and France, and it may have been a wedding present from her mother-in-law. It gives us a tiny glimpse of the extraordinary luxury with which Isabella surrounded herself. That, of course, was appropriate for a queen, but the problem was that Isabella didn't know where to stop. At the helm of English government, Isabella and Mortimer rewarded themselves not just with silver trinkets, but with vast estates and the contents of the royal treasury. 
but now they were behaving exactly like Edward and Dispenser before them. For two years, Isabella and her lover ruled the country with a vice-like grip, meeting opposition with brutal suppression. And all the time, Isabella kept her son, King Edward III, closely by her side, monitoring his friends and allowing him no freedom to act alone. Marlowe would later describe Isabella's son as a lamb encompassed by wolves. But by 1330, Edward was 17, and the she-wolf was about to discover that her offspring had claws of his own. Isabella's day of reckoning came at Nottingham Castle. She had already become suspicious that her son was beginning to resist her control. So when the royal party took up residence here, they had the guards redoubled about them. But Edward's plans had been well laid. Under cover of darkness, a group of young knights made their way through these secret tunnels into the castle. Mortimer and Isabella were surrounded before they knew what was happening. Isabella was forced back into her bedchamber and Mortimer was disarmed and overpowered in a matter of moments. After three years, the rule of Isabella and her consort was over. There was no doubt about Mortimer's fate. He was sentenced to a traitor's death for killing the last king and usurping the power of the new one. He was hanged at Tyburn like a common thief. More than 20 years of brutal political experience told Isabella that Mortimer's fate was inevitable. But what would hers be? She was, after all, the king's mother. And once Mortimer was dead, the story could be spun that she had been diverted from her royal duty by his machinations. Presumably, she mourned for him, but she'd always been a realist, and she took care to leave no public traces of her grief. Her son might have acted against her because of the way she'd ruled, but Isabella was still his mother. She had to surrender her vast estates, but Edward gave her an income of £3,000 a year. She could no longer intervene in politics, but she would have a sumptuous, if compulsory, retirement. Isabella had an extraordinary life. She showed for a brief moment that female leadership could represent the legitimacy of the crown forcefully enough to depose an anointed king. But the exercise of power by a woman turned out to be a different matter, and particularly a woman like Isabella, who enriched herself rather than nurturing her people. In retrospect, the death of her husband came to define Isabella not as the saviour of England, but in the words of the poet Thomas Gray, as the she-wolf of France, with unrelenting fangs that tearst the bowels of thy mangled mate. This is how Isabella has been remembered. Certainly, many of her actions were violent and self-serving. But then, so were those of the men around her. And the vitriol heaped on her by history draws on an image of female power as grotesque, savage and immoral. Over the next hundred years, England and France were almost constantly at war. And out of this conflict emerged the woman that Shakespeare dubbed a she-wolf. By 1444, the English were on the back foot and ready to make a truce. All hopes for peace rested on the young shoulders of Margaret, daughter of the Duke of Anjou. She would marry the English king, Henry VI, and seal a treaty between the warring countries. Margaret grew up in this impressive castle in Angers, and her childhood here gave her a useful lesson in the limitations of royal power. Margaret's father had many grand titles. In theory, he was king of Sicily, Naples and Jerusalem, and he spent most of her childhood fighting to turn those paper crowns into real power. 
In the meantime, Margaret, here in Anjou, was brought up by her formidable mother and grandmother. The message to Margaret was clear. Royal power had to be fought for, and a woman could rule if a man was absent. When Margaret left Angers at the age of 15 to marry a man she'd never met, she couldn't have known how valuable these lessons would prove to be. 23-year-old Henry probably struck Margaret as a reassuring presence. He had an unworldly, childlike air, more a naive innocent than a grim-faced soldier. But if that made him a gentle husband, Margaret was about to discover that it also made him a disastrous king. Henry VI had come to the throne as a nine-month-old baby, and England had been governed by a council of noblemen. But now, at the age of 23, Henry seemed no more capable of ruling than he had as a baby. It's not clear exactly when Margaret realised how utterly incapable her husband was, but what happened seven years into their marriage left no room for doubt. To Margaret's delight, in 1453 she gave birth to her first child, a healthy boy named Edward. But Henry took no part in the celebrations. Ten weeks before the birth, his fragile mental faculties had disintegrated completely and he'd fallen into a catatonic trance. Henry was oblivious to their son's arrival, but Margaret had good reason to be jubilant. With the heir to the throne in her arms, she discovered, just like Isabella before her, that she had a direct stake in the power play that surrounded her. The question now was how far she would go in using it. The answer wasn't slow in coming. Just three months after her son's birth, a well-informed observer in London reported that the Queen desires to have the whole rule of this land as well as the right to appoint all other officers that the king should make. Margaret was proposing that she should act as regent for her helpless husband. This dramatic piece of self-assertion was the first step on a road that would eventually lead to Shakespeare's lacerating portrait of Margaret as the she-wolf of France. But if we look behind the caricature, there was much more to Margaret's position than unthinking aggression. The Times invited her to act. Margaret stepped onto the political stage as the country stood on the brink of civil war. After years without royal leadership, English politics was in the grip of a destructive rivalry between the two most powerful nobles in England. This was the beginning of what would become known, thanks to Shakespeare and later art and literature, as the Wars of the Roses. Margaret watched as the nobles divided. On one side was the Duke of York, the king's cousin, who claimed to speak for the good of the whole country. On the other was the Duke of Somerset, who acted for the House of Lancaster, the line from which Henry descended. Both claimed the right to rule in the king's absence, and now their rivalry threatened to spill onto the battlefield. It was amid this tension and fear that Margaret made her bid to rule. From Margaret's own perspective, she was the obvious candidate to safeguard her husband's kingdom, just as her mother had governed Anjou in her father's absence. But Henry was only mentally, not physically absent, and to the English nobles, it seemed as though their French-born queen was trying to exceed her proper powers. To Margaret's distress, the nobles turned to a council of their own, under the leadership of the Duke of York, on his orders, his rival, the Duke of Somerset, was confined to the Tower of London. But on Christmas Day, 1454, Margaret was suddenly presented with a way forward. Sixteen months after he had last shown any sign of knowing who or where he was, King Henry suddenly returned to his senses, such as they'd ever been. As Margaret introduced her toddling son to his astounded father for the first time, the Duke of York's caretaker regime fell apart. Somerset was released from the tower, and it seemed as though the political merry-go-round was turning once again. 
but by this time, York and Somerset's rivalry had become a deadly enmity. Margaret believed that Somerset supported her husband, and for the moment he had the king by his side. But York was intent on having the king under his control. And now the other great noble families were taking sides. And in May 1455, when the two armies came face to face in the unassuming market town of St. Albans, political confrontation finally became civil war. The first battle of the Wars of the Roses was fought through the streets and houses of the town. In these confined spaces, probably a hundred men died. King Henry took no part in the Battle of St Albans. He just sat under his banner in the market square while his greatest nobles fought to the death in these streets all around him. Nothing could have made it clearer that he was only a pawn in this increasingly brutal and dangerous game. When the fighting was over, it became clear that the Duke of York's army had won the day, and his enemy, the Duke of Somerset, was dead. Henry was now in York's control. The battle changed everything, and for Margaret, it was a turning point. York still claimed to be Henry's loyal subject. But in Margaret's view, loyal subjects didn't set out to capture their king in battle. And York's closeness to the royal line of succession now made him a threat to her son. If Henry wasn't able to fight for their son's future, then Margaret would do it for him. But Margaret knew that her next move would have to be made carefully. For now, she left London for her castle at Tutbury in Staffordshire. But this wasn't a retreat from the political front line. Instead, it was an attempt to match the Duke of York with a territorial power base of her own. Margaret had the castle at Tutbury enlarged and improved. It was an imposing residence for an increasingly imposing queen. Margaret was clearly demonstrating to anyone who cared to look that she was prepared to fight to defend her husband and son. But in doing so, she provoked a reaction. And as ever, a woman in power was vulnerable to sexual as well as political slurs. Rumours began to speak of the little prince as a bastard or a changeling, and to suggest that in private, Henry's queen might not be as loyal as she seemed. The implication was that unnatural impulses were at work, both inside and outside the royal bedchamber. Margaret knew that York's supporters were taking every opportunity to slander her, but she was made of stern stuff. It would take more than words to defeat her. By the summer of 1456, it was clear where the fulcrum of power now lay. A contemporary wrote, my Lord of York waits on the Queen, and she upon him. Despite attempts to find a lasting peace, the country divided behind Margaret and York. For Margaret, this meant raising an army in the name of her husband and son. This beautiful object, known as the Dunstable Swan Jewel, probably dates from about 1400. The swan was one of the emblems of the Prince of Wales, and so it was a badge with this image of a swan with a crown around its neck that Margaret began to distribute to her loyal supporters in the name of her small son. She was determined to defend the rights of her husband and son by any means necessary. Margaret saw no middle ground in this conflict. Anyone who wasn't with her, she believed, was an enemy of the crown but that didn't mean her task would be easy. In September 1459, the two sides met at Blore Heath in Staffordshire. After four hours of bloody fighting, 2,000 men lay dead on the battlefield. 
the Yorkists had defeated an army which was supposedly King Henry's, but everyone knew where the power really lay. One chronicler described it as an army of the Queen's gallants. But three weeks later, the two sides met again, and this time it was York's army that was defeated. Margaret's enemies, the Duke of York, his son Edward, and nephew, the Earl of Warwick, scattered to Ireland and France. In their absence, Margaret seized her moment to declare her enemies guilty of treason. But they were not yet destroyed in person, and Margaret now found that the power base she built for herself in the north had alienated her husband's subjects in the south. And in July 1460, when York's son Edward and nephew Warwick returned with troops to face her army at Northampton, the result for Margaret was a calamity. She lost both the battle and the person of the king. Margaret was left helpless as the Duke of York took her husband as a prisoner to London. The Pope later observed that the king was more timorous than a woman, utterly devoid of wit and spirit. The contrast with his forceful wife was obvious. News reached Margaret that York was now claiming the crown for himself. He argued that his royal line of descent made him the rightful king, rather than Henry. It was a convenient version of history, but for the moment he couldn't get the nobles to back him. Instead, a compromise was reached. Henry would keep his crown, but when he died, York would succeed him. For Margaret, this was no settlement, but a nightmare. Her son, for whose rights she'd fought since the moment of his birth, would be disinherited. She threw herself into the task of raising support from Scotland and the English lords still loyal to her. Now, this was a fight to the death. Success for Margaret came much more swiftly than she could ever have hoped when the Duke of York was ambushed and killed by Margaret's troops at Wakefield in Yorkshire in December 1460. She ordered that his head be set on a spike on Micklegate Bar in York, dressed in a paper crown to mock his pretensions of majesty. Now Margaret's greatest enemy was dead, but victory was not yet hers. There were still men prepared to fight for the Yorkist cause, and York's son, Edward, and nephew Warwick wanted revenge. It was once again at St Albans that the two sides met. While Margaret's army fought Warwick's, the Queen waited impatiently for news here in the Abbey. The outcome was a triumph. The Yorkists were defeated, and their prisoner, King Henry, was released and reunited with Margaret. Husband and wife were back together, but this was hardly a romantic reunion. Margaret's triumph lay in the fact that the power of the royal triumvirate, king, queen and prince, was once again at her disposal. But the war wasn't yet won. Margaret had now been fighting for eight long years. She, a woman alone, had kept the royal cause alive. Henry might be a hopeless case, but if she could keep fighting, then surely their son would one day get his chance to become a glorious king. But even though her greatest enemy, the Duke of York, was dead, it turned out that she now faced an even greater threat his 18-year-old son, Edward. Edward was tall, handsome, charismatic and precociously able. He looked more like a king than anyone had seen in years. And a king was exactly what he was claiming to be. Just as his father had done before him, he argued that his royal descent trumped Henry's own. The difference was that this time London agreed and rapturously acclaimed him as King Edward IV. Nine days later, his forces set out to defeat Margaret once and for all. 
the two sides met at Towton in Yorkshire. And Margaret, Henry and their seven-year-old son took refuge behind the city walls at York. This 15th century screen at York Minster shows all the kings of England from William the Conqueror to Margaret's husband, Henry VI. For Margaret, the last eight years had been devoted to securing her son's place in this unbroken line. And now she could do nothing but pace restlessly here at York while her soldiers did their work. Eight hours later, thousands upon thousands of men were dead and it was Margaret's army that had shattered. As the light began to fade on this bloodiest of battlefields, Edward of York stood unchallenged, now King of England in fact as well as name. And Margaret, her husband and son fled north, no longer the royal family, but hunted fugitives. It was the bitterest of blows. Margaret had invested every ounce of her strength to animate the cause of an inert king, but as a woman she couldn't simply inhabit the role her husband had left so damagingly vacant. Now she had to watch as Edward, a golden boy in a golden crown, occupied the throne as if he'd been born to it. But still she wouldn't give in. She tried to raise support from the Scots and the French, but in England, as a foreign-born queen, Margaret was damned twice over for the country of her birth and her sex. According to a poem of the time, She and her wicked affinity certain intend utterly to destroy this region. Nor would she capitulate when her husband was finally captured and imprisoned in the Tower of London in the summer of 1465. With nowhere else to turn, Margaret and her son fled across the Channel, where the King of France allowed her to set up a tiny and impoverished court in an obscure corner of his kingdom. Margaret's son was ten when they moved to France, and as he grew into manhood, Margaret doggedly fought on in the attempt to secure his future as King of England. She watched hawkishly for any chink in the Yorkist regime and constantly petitioned the crowned heads of Europe for help. But it was a fruitless task. For Margaret and her little band of loyalists, the outlook was bleak. Margaret never gave up, but well-informed observers knew her cause was hopeless. That, however, was to reckon without the Yorkist regime's extraordinary capacity for self-destruction. Edward's cousin, the Earl of Warwick, is known to history as the Kingmaker. And that, it turned out, was how he saw himself. He had been the driving force behind Edward's campaign for the throne. But now Edward was king, Warwick discovered he couldn't control him. And they'd fallen into a bitter rivalry. To bring down this Yorkist king, Warwick needed another candidate to wear the crown and the only viable alternative was the House of Lancaster, Margaret, her husband and son. This was the moment for which Margaret had been waiting nine long years, but it came at a terrible price. To seize this chance to regain her son's inheritance, Margaret had to take the hand of the Earl of Warwick, a man she despised and mistrusted. For Margaret, this was an agonizing decision. Warwick had been one of the architects of her husband's fall and the disinheritance of her son. He'd led armies against her on bloody battlefields. But now, he offered Margaret her only chance to ensure her son's future. On the 22nd of July, 1470, here at Angers, Margaret came face to face with Warwick. They were enemies, divided by a river of blood. But now, they were about to become allies. Margaret's distaste was such that she kept Warwick on his knees in front of her for 15 minutes. But the deal was done. It was a treaty sealed with a kiss, 
when Margaret's 17-year-old son married Warwick's daughter. In return for this stake in the royal dynasty, Warwick set sail for England to challenge Edward and restore Henry to the throne. Margaret stayed in France, waiting to hear that England was won before she or her son stepped on English soil again. And good news reached her startlingly quickly. Edward was surprised by Warwick's attack. With his forces unprepared, he fled to the Netherlands, leaving Warwick to free the bewildered King Henry from the tower. With her husband back on the throne and her son ready to step into his shoes, England was once again within Margaret's grasp. So on Easter Sunday, the 14th of April, 1471, after a difficult voyage, Margaret and her son at last set foot on the English coast. And at that moment, their world fell apart. Their timing was disastrous. Edward II had returned to England with a small band of soldiers. And just hours before Margaret landed, in a bitterly fought battle at Barnet, north of London, Edward defeated and killed Warwick. Suddenly, Margaret found herself exposed and vulnerable. All her carefully laid plans were falling apart. And now, once again, the future would be decided on a battlefield. Margaret had support and reinforcements in the west of the country, and she made her way to join them. Edward set out to intercept her, warning that death would be the penalty for anyone who helped Margaret. Everything now depended on this race across the country. The two armies met at Tewkesbury, and it was here in this beautiful abbey that Margaret was once again left to wait for news. But this time she was alone. For the very first time, at the age of 17, her son was on the battlefield. Today he would either win his father's crown or lose his life. The end, when it came, was quick. Margaret's son died where he fell, in the rout of the Lancastrian army. Margaret didn't try to run. She had nowhere to go, and no one left to fight for. And when Edward made his victorious entry into London, the captive queen followed in a chariot, straight-backed and blank-faced, staring at nothing. The following day, King Henry's body was brought out of the tower. The Londoners were told he had died of pure displeasure and melancholy at the news of his son's death, but few doubted that Edward had ordered his killing. Margaret was 41, and without her husband and son, her life was over. She was no longer a threat to Edward, so he had no need to kill her. Instead, he imprisoned her for four years in England, before allowing her to return to France, penniless and purposeless. And when she died at the age of 51, her death went unnoticed by the crowned heads of Europe. Margaret and Isabella had each stepped forward to become a queen who dominated the political chessboard. Their forceful leadership shaped the power play around them, but it also exposed them to vitriolic criticism. Their self-assertion that would have seemed natural in a man was deemed unnatural, even monstrous, in a woman. As a result, they've gone down in history condemned as she-wolves. In the next programme, we'll see what happened when England was faced not with inadequate kings, but no kings at all. When Edward died, there was no one left to claim the title of King of England. For the first time in English history, all the contenders for his crown were female. So would the Tudor queens succeed as England's first female kings? 
Would England finally accept the rule of a woman alone? A long stint on open ocean tomorrow for Monty Hall's The Fisherman's Apprentice at eight. On the way tonight, how to rustle up a bun or two in Holland on the Hairy Bikers' vacation.